0: Welcome everyone, my name is David and I'll be hosting today's Awaken call. Thank you for joining us from wherever you happen to be in our world. The intention behind these calls is to plant seeds of awareness and transformation within ourselves and our communities through conversations with individuals whose journeys and work inspire us. Awaken Calls is an initiative of Service Space, a distributed, global, all-volunteer community committed to the principle that by changing ourselves, we change the world. Behind each of these calls is an entire ServiceSpace team whose invisible work allows us to hold this space. In a few minutes, our moderator, Preeta, will begin by engaging in an initial dialogue with our speaker today, Chris Hoffman. And by the top of the hour, we'll open up into a circle of sharing. We'll draw upon reflections and questions from all of you. At any time during the call, you can submit comments or questions via the webcast form on our live stream page, or you can email us at ask at That's A-S-K at servicebase.org. So whether you're tuning in live or listening to the recording later, we're grateful for your presence in co-creating and deepening the collective energy of this conversation. And a friendly reminder that there is that there if there is a technological glitch or issue uh, for any of the speakers, please hang in there while our team works quickly to bring bring it back online. Um, so let us start with a minute of silence, just to anchor ourselves in this space. Thank you and welcome again. Our moderator for this conversation today with Chris Hoffman is Prita Bansal. Preeta's commitment for service uh, took the form of public service for much of her life. A constitutional lawyer by background, Preeta has served in some of the most senior posts in government and corporate sectors from the White House to US diplomatic and human rights work to state government and global corporations and law firm. Her passion for service is now finding expression to our great benefit in service space, and she is the anchor of these awakened calls, along with many other expressions of her leadership in various sectors. Preeta will now introduce our guest and begin this conversation. Preeta, over to you.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much, David. Um, and it's an incredible pleasure, especially to be doing this call with you. Um, David's a past awakened guest himself and I'm looking forward to his contribution. So i um, so excited to be in conversation today with Chris. Chris Hoffman is really a, a fascinating and unlikely in some ways global globetrotting humanitarian. Mm-hmm. Um, he grew up in a small town in Ohio uh, to a young teenage mom and ended up at the age of 13 living abroad, working with various global communities via a teen mission organization. He was in the bush of Zimbabwe, and went to the jungle in Brazil and then off to Mozambique as the war there was winding down, a most unusual teenage life in some ways. The early seed that had been planted for travel then took root after these incredible experiences and he recognized his life's purpose, which was to serve communities in need as a humanitarian. After graduating from university in Pennsylvania, he went to work for the Peace Corps in Kenya and then across four different continents for the UN, World Vision and other international agencies. He spent 20 years from being a teen um, in areas of crisis, disaster in more than 40 countries and countless experiences with the UN and uh, various international nonprofits. After 20 years in the field, he started realizing that you can't really do good if you yourself aren't well, and that sometimes humanitarians inadvertently may do more harm through their own unresolved trauma and issues and, and the experience they have of going from crisis to crisis. So he stepped back and he stepped away um, and focused on his own wellness and, uh, and, and brought that to the field through somatic and mindfulness tools for humanitarians via a role at the Garrison International Institute. And he's now a founder of Humanity Link, which tries to use tech to empower program clients so they are partners and co-creators in the solutions with the international agencies that aim to serve them. So with that I'm just really excited Chris to be in conversation with you and uh thank you for all your work and service and and the and it's evolve it's evolution.
2: Oh predate it's so great to be here and I'm so honored to be in conversation with you and David today. This is a a really special honor for me to to have uh this chance to be with you. Thank you.
1: Thank you. So let's start um I guess you know you, you you're 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 self-proclaimed in some ways humanitarian, or at least that term. And I'm curious, um, maybe we can talk a little bit about that term. Like, what is, what did that mean to you when you were younger? And what does what does that mean to you now? Like, what is a humanitarian? And how has that evolved in your view?
2: Well, I think just the knowledge of the word, um, because I, it didn't start out that way, right? My, I was out there, what I thought was, as the helper right? Um, you need some assistance. I've got some expertise, or when I was younger, I didn't have any, I was gaining, you know, experience and knowledge. Um, but I had some hands, and they could do things. And so that's kind of where it started. And then shifting into the UN, where the word humanitarian really goes behind the definition in humanitarian law and all these other things, I'm sure which you're really familiar with. But but that idea of really um, honing in on what legal basis do I have as a professional, Right, and understanding my professional role and 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 the accountability that comes with that, and then but then turned back around. So it's funny; it kind of came full circle to where it is today, where for me it's really about human being human and understanding the humans in front of you, or in another country that 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 I'm trying to to provide assistance in, um, and what would I want if I was in their situation? What decisions would I be thinking I have to make and how do you make that allowable for them to do that uh, versus supplanting you know the traditional kind of humanitarian assistance is you supplant on top, wait until things are fixed and then you pull yourself out um, versus actually going in having that conversation and and being human uh, with those. Um, you know it's uh, it's really changed over time. I was a really good person to send in anywhere and get something done. And I really hardly ever met with anyone when I was there, right? Um, except in my little office making decisions on behalf of tens of thousands of people versus now being able to create conversations is what we do today is create those conversations that we can have to learn what each individual needs in those experiences, which I think is is really special.
1: Yeah, thank you. There's so much to unpack there and we will unpack a lot of pieces of that. like. That notion of going and being a problem solver, a fixer, versus like uh, just being in relationship. Um, but l- l- but maybe we can start um, a little bit. L- let's start at the beginning because I your 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 background and your childhood is so interesting and unusual. Um, and I think I think it's 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 important maybe to start there. So I guess I'm curious, like what you know you as a young teen you had these pretty amazing experiences where you went and lived uh with adults but not with your family in in different parts of the world from a very young age from the age of 13 I guess can you tell us a little bit about what led a small town ohio kid to even want to have that kind of experience and like what 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 made that all happen
2: i'm not sure that that small town ohio kid knew what he was thinking uh when he started uh but obviously that's that's how the the universe works right um it started out, I was I was struggling and through my struggles, it was kind of becoming everybody else's struggle. I was a really active kid, you know, didn't cause trouble or anything like that, but I was super active, really, uh, you know, in class, you know, outside of class, I couldn't stop, you know, from six o'clock in the morning until, you know, it was time to go to bed. I was really, the, the, the wheels were turning and that became kind of difficult for those around me and, and everything to deal with. And so there was a conversation at home at one point around, well, we're looking at military school. What do we think about, you know, you know, or something like that, uh, help you get some focus. And and my grandfather and my, my mother stepped up and said, look, there's this group um, that operates these, 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 these trips. And um, we think it'd be great for you. And the thing about these trips is that it's not just, you just sign up and go, you actually have to raise all the money yourself. And so uh, um, you know, it takes a village. Well, it did take a village. You know, I had the neighbors every year would donate twenty dollars or one hundred dollars at the time, which was a lot of money, really. You know, when you look back um, uh, at, at those that, that time of, of of history and they would donate for me to go. And I was given thirty two thirty two thirty two kilos and, a, and an army duffel bag. And then I was sent off uh, and then I would meet the people that I'm traveling with and then we would all fly together uh, to, to the, the, the place that we were going. I remember landing in Johannesburg in, um, this was in 90, 1990, so still uh, under uh, the, the regime, et cetera. You know, all these things were still, were still going on. Uh, getting on a bus, traveling for about 16 hours by bus into Bulawayo, arriving at night, couldn't see anything. So it was the weirdest experience. I'm in Zimbabwe with people I've never met before really, except for the last week. And now it's dark and I'm in the bush and then the sun rose. And you can't imagine even today that experience of waking up, coming out of a tent and looking at the, the African sunrise in Zimbabwe at the time. And that went on. And I, I, loved, I loved it so much. I really enjoyed it. I, I really only cried once. I remember I cried the, on my birthday. <laughs> when i turned 14 i remember being away from home and thinking oh but otherwise it was it was experience after experience and then that moved into brazil which was absolutely phenomenal um and and really gained a lot of experience there because we were really left in you know in the jungle uh we would wash our clothes in this little little pond that had uh fish that would come and and, and bite our toes and then at night we could shine our flashlights around the pond where our tents were and there were just crocodiles everywhere um, uh, well, they were red eyes. We never saw them during the day, so I, I'm not sure. But we all thought that they were crocodiles. And and Mozambique was very different as well. Mozambique was my first experience with the UN, and um, and seeing the peacekeepers there. And and it wasn't a very good experience for the peacekeepers. They they there was a lot of a lot of history and and human rights violations even by them in Mozambique. And being in the middle of that, it's um, where I got my first UN hat. I remember one of the guys gave me one, but. That started my journey. And I said, I wanted to be a doctor. So that's why I went to university was to be a doctor. And, uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm going to, I could continue to babble on, but those were the, you know, the first, that was what brought me up into this space. of I, I wanted to okay. be a doctor. Right. Yeah. And, um, and I thought that that's what I had been called to do. Um,
1: that's I'm not interesting. A doctor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so this was roughly age 13 to like what? 16, 17? 17. 17. Yeah. 17. and so what were you doing so you, i i guess i'm curious you went with a mission organization what tell us a little bit about that aspect of it like mission and Excellent. um and what what were you doing and uh and then why why was medicine the path that called you after those experiences
2: well um because uh, i'll start with the end the where medicine came in was because i really wanted to go to the air force academy and always dreamt about being a pilot and I couldn't do the interviews because I was away during the summer and the way that it works for the academies is you have to go through an interview process, et cetera. And I missed, I missed all that uh, as I was away. So, um, so I didn't get to do that. And that whole idea of service, whether it was the military, which is the complete opposite side of things. Right. But it was this still this mindset of service and um, uh, um, I even trained my teams on what we call the service mindset, which is around how we engage with people. So it's always been really, really close to me. My father's a firefighter. I've got a family of service. My grandfather, my great grandfather, were preachers. You know, it goes on and on. Of, of uh, my great grandfather was also a firefighter on the other side. So you can you can see there's this service uh, story that that goes along. But what we were doing so each each trip was different. So the first trip uh, we were going there to do construction. So um, there was a, a church that needed to be built uh, from the ground up. So from digging the foundations to laying every brick, to laying the caps, laying the floor, putting on the trusses and putting on the roof, the whole thing um, and doing that. Uh, it, it was right next to a school in a little village called Entunte, which is about five kilometers. Uh, well, Entunte is about five kilometers away from where we were staying. And then Bulaway was the next biggest city close to us. And, and then in Brazil, I was actually going to build an airstrip um and so we were going to to go to the northern part of the amazon and build an airstrip but there was a lot of unrest going on there because of logging and things even at that time this is 91 and so instead they moved us into hondonia which is really remote i mean when you tell a brazilian that you're in hondonia they're like why would you go to hondonia like there's you know it's and this was also a, a strange place this is my first really picture on what was going on in brazil at the time uh there was uh mining in the Madeira river and uh and, and things that, that were going on. Uh, but there we ended up building an orphanage. So again, from the ground up, an enormous orphanage, 20-room orphanage uh, for, for for kids that were there. Um, and then in Mozambique, it was a very different experience. So in Mozambique, I was in Beira in the city. And uh, like I said, right after the war, we were in the basement of an orphanage. Uh, and then um, our, our job was to teach and train um, kids um, about... Um, Moving, making that transition uh, into adulthood um, and and having the skills. And I actually went back during university to Mozambique and did another six months there. Um, I took a semester off and went there for another six months to to work in the training school as well, um, which was my second experience with the UN because it was a UN building that they had vacated and they, yeah. uh, they had set up the training school there, yeah.
1: Great. Um, so you said the first experience was building a church. I want to and and you mentioned your grandparents. I think your grandfather was a preacher. And before that, I'm curious about any spiritual yearnings you had at that point in your life. Um, and we'll come back to that later. But I'm curious at that age, was was the spiritual component, was that a piece of what was driving you?
2: Oh, uh yeah. Yes. I mean, a hundred percent the reason that I was going was around the spiritual component, right? But me understanding the spiritual component is a whole different story, I think. I don't, I don't think I grasped at all what the difference was between church and spirituality and and understanding of the greatness of that which is outside of us right the universe and i think those pieces and and that's why i think it um it never not all of it came together for me as a piece right it was all part of um and it and it went back to one of the things that still to this day drives me which is that treat treat others as you want to be treated right the there's the golden rule, the great calling, all these different things that sit within the Bible, right? But but the, the one for me was was more centered around the, the golden rule, whereas everybody was always talking about the work we were doing as the great calling. So, so it was always tough for me. Why do we use that? You go out and, and teach the nations about, you know, me versus the idea of why don't you just treat people like you want to be treated? And so that was a that was that was the big the big break i think for me in terms of why i was doing what i was doing was i was actually doing it because we're all human um uh, versus that that more you know monotheistic call yeah. to 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 change people um and that's 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 carried on you know for me now in 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 everything um that i do is is that that true feeling of wanting to make sure that we're all equal in the way that we interact that we all have mm-hmm. the same amount of agency that we all have uh, the same opportunity to be able to speak and to be
1: heard mm-hmm. um yeah yeah I'm curious about those uh, I'm sorry I'm, I'm kind of we're going to get into a little bit about the nature of service and what that looks like but I want to kind of just focus in a little bit for a second on that those early years when you were in those communities um and you're you know you're young did you feel like you were creating relationships with the townspeople what was the group that you were with largely you know as, as a young person within that group I should say were you largely self-contained within that group How, what was the nature of your interaction and the reason I'm asking that is like what what made you feel like this is it for me like this is what I want to do was it that sense of helping was it the sense of adventure like what what was it that really drew you in
2: well, I think at that age, it was a little bit of both. There was quite a lot of adventure, right? And so that was really exciting. Um, but I, I, honestly, I remember every song that I've learned in every vernacular language whenever I was there. I can sing them to this day, word for word. Now, I can't remember the lyrics to a Steely Dan song to save my life, but I can remember wor- songs in Indebellé, songs in Portuguese, you know, and, and everything. And, and they sit with me all the time like I mean they roll off my tongue wherever I am. And and so that there was this there was mm. this convergence in myself with mm. them, that relationship building that came around music. And music has always been very important to me in my life. Um, and and so that was that was the connection that just really brought things together was that vibration that came from the singing. Uh, and that yeah was really, really special uh, for me. In those relationships um the language also 13 i hadn't taken a foreign language yet
1: yeah
2: and uh you know you get into these spaces and where we were definitely the predominance of people did not speak uh english and so being able to learn i remember sitting in the school because the school was next door in zimbabwe and uh, in Debele, it was written on the board. And I remember studying it and taking pictures of it so that I could learn because they're, they're weird conjugations, you know, in, in, in these languages yeah. that I, weren't familiar to me at the time, you know, like N and D next to each other and, you know, these different things. And they use clicks as well. And so learning those things and they use sometimes the back of the throat, sometimes the tip of the tongue, you know, and, and being able to do that was really, that really brought me in. And that's been my connection. That's been my relationship builder henceforth. From that point, at 13 to today, wherever I am, learning the language first is one of the first things that I do. And it might be just enough to go shopping, but it's enough to put a smile on a face and start a connection and that's where the beauty grows. And um, yeah, that's, that was the biggest learning I think I took from that first trip.
1: Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. And when you were in um, in Zimbabwe, I guess that, what was your sense, or I guess, yeah, in Mozambique after the civil war, you said that was kind of where you got you encountered the UN. Um, what was your sense of peacekeeping and th- what the UN was doing and and what the role of international organizations was in all this?
2: Well, I knew where I could get the best hamburgers in town, right? <laughs> if I went to the UN compound, that was the first thing, right? And and so this idea of, of a disparity was the first thing that I noticed, right? You've got with peacekeepers, DPKO, right, Department of Peacekeeping Operations, you've got big white trucks, black UN painted on the side of the vehicle, you know, and they've got guns. And I was like, "Hold on, where does peacekeeper and and guns, you know, sit with?" And then you go to the next compound over, and the UN's written in blue. I'm like, "Why is there, where is there? Where's the difference here? What's going on?" And trying to understand that uh, was a big thing for me at that point. Um, yeah, the peacekeepers again. I I, I really struggled with it. I, I struggled with what they were doing. I struggled with understanding. What they were providing, how they were providing it, I could see how they were interacting with people, and it was out of fear. And but then you've got the the blue side, right? The what called the humanitarian side, which was there, and you know they're talking about projects, they're talking about being out in the field, they're talking about giving people goats and bicycles and these types of things, and getting them back on their feet. And so I started to realize. In, you know, in my head, as I was talking about the military or that, that is not where I want to go, you know, the, that side of things. And, and that's the side of things where I really feel like I can make a difference in my life. And, and yeah. the doctor piece came out as well then, because um seeing the hospitals that were completely you know, no windows, you know, or anything in Mozambique at the end of the war, there was, I mean, everything was destroyed, just anything from hotels to houses to to everything, and then seeing that, and saying that's probably going to be the biggest gap. And I really feel I I felt a strong calling at that time in my life that I wanted to be a doctor and and, and work in the bush, and that's why I went back. So I started off in university uh, as a pre med student, uh, and then after after about a year and a half, I said, well, I need to make sure because this is a big commitment, right? I got about another ten years to go here, so I want to make sure. So I went back and I and I worked in a clinic in zimbabwe and uh that was the time that i learned that i didn't i wasn't called to be a doctor i was in the in the in the the outpatient with the doctor he'd bring me in every day and i'd sit in this outpatient clinic uh in hippo valley estates and um and a woman walked in with a big swollen knee and he said oh i need to need to draw out the, the fluid from the knee she'd been kicked by a cow and uh as he was drawing out from her knee uh, she went to grab the needle and the doctor hit her to have her stop her from pulling it out. And, you know, this was at the height of the AIDS epidemic and everything. And he's there with his three children. He's worried, you know, it, it was a visceral kind of response that he had. And, but then I realized that, whoa, okay, this doesn't feel right to me. And it could have just been the doctor, but it was like that, that light came down and said, no, Chris, this is not your space. This is not how you're going to be able to help. You need to rethink. And I went back to university and, and went and did a two degrees in international business and international relations um, and, and started studying Russian and thought, I'm going to try something completely different. I'm going to get out there and, and really try something different. Um, and then, obviously, as you said, went into the Peace Corps after that.
1: Yeah, awesome. So let's get into, uh, so this whole nature, the, the whole notion of serving and serving through humanitarian organizations and the role of international organizations so, so many people, and I'm curious, I mean, then you had 20 years in the field after the Peace Corps, you had a whole career where you went, I think, to something like 40 countries in different in different time periods. Um, so many people are drawn to this notion of, you know, saving the world, helping the world, fixing the world, all of these things. Um, and that that could be mission, missionaries trying to save people's souls, humanitarians trying to, you know, lift up people. and so, firemen, as you said, in your family that are trying to, you know, support people and so many other nobly-minded people. Um, you know, Rachel Remen, who we were, uh, we all have come to love, she has this beautiful distinction um, in her terminology between serving versus helping versus fixing. Um, and I'm just going to, just for our audience, I'm just going to read a tiny excerpt of one of her pieces because it sets the context. Um, and, and I, I want to come back to like yeah, what service really is and, and what, what you think happens or what can happen in the field. Um, so Rachel says that serving is different from helping and fixing. And she says, helping is based on inequality. It's not a relationship between equals. When I help, I'm very aware of my own strength and the need of the other person. Um, and people feel this inequality. So when we help, we may inadvertently take away from people more than what we could ever give them. We take away their self-esteem their sense of worth, their sense of integrity and wholeness. Um, she says, in contrast to that service is a relationship between equals. And then she says, service is also different from fixing. Um, when I fix a person, I perceive them as broken and their brokenness requires me to act. When I fix, I don't see their wholeness um, or trust the integrity of the life in them. Fixing is a form of judgment. Um, and, and again, she says in fixing, there's an inequality of expertise that can become a moral distance. Um, and we cannot serve at a distance. So I guess you know, as you think about being a humanitarian and all the humanitarians you've encountered in the you know in your in your travels, I wonder, how does one try to help or save the world without seeing it and the people you're serving is broken?
2: I think that's a that's an innate struggle that many humanitarians face. Um, I don't I don't know. I think it's shifted over time. Let me put it that way. Let's look at the history, right? The history of post-World War II, right? Europe has fallen humanitarian day beyond the Red Cross, which was already there, but, you know, the real uh, pluralization of aid, et cetera, coming out of, of post-World War II, right? The reconstruction and all the agencies that came from that. And people were going in to to save, right? People to, to help, right? I think that was more of the help time, right? They were, we want to help. And what do you do as a helper? You end up it slowly moves into fixing, right? Because you get used to it. You know that you know the cadence of which you're working, you know the cadence of the way the disasters or crises happen. So you get into fixing. You just start doing the same thing over and over again. You don't care about who you're serving, you care about doing your job, right? And that's kind of that that that's how that transition moves. That move into service has really been, to be fair, now not not everybody, right? But I'm, I'm going to generalize a little bit. But but in the last probably 15 years, we've seen a, a shift. And that shift to service has been around one specific modality that's changed a lot of other things, and that's around cash. So if you ever look at humanitarianism up until around 15 years ago, right, give or take, nobody ever used to give money. They would give things because there was a lack of trust on how people would use the money. So immediately, the way that you were delivering your service was based on the fact that you didn't trust the person that was in need that you were trying to help. I mean, it's the strangest dichotomy to have to actually think about, but it but it, it was the reality and it, for, again, almost 70 years. Now, as we moved into this more cash space, this opportunity for people to be able to make their own decisions, to be able to have the agency to say what they want, and then be able to choose what they want, um, has revolutionized part of the humanitarian sector, right? Part of it... Uh, it, 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 it's a big, it's a Titanic, right? You, you talk about big ships and how hard they are to turn, right? The, the, the humanitarian industry is very, very difficult to turn. And, and so cash, people are moving towards cash as, as an assistance modality, but the systems behind it still don't support it very well. So I think that what we see, or what I see today is that there is a great desire by many people in the humanitarian sector to move towards that service kind of mindset um, but I don't think that the systems are allowing it um, to move as quickly as it should, based on still this issue of trust, which goes back to the point that you were making before around that inequality. And it's a perceived inequality by the person delivering a service, right? They, they think that you are in need or that you, um, you are vulnerable or that you can't do for yourself, therefore I must come and do for you, um, versus the fact that they really... They can do for themselves. They just need to have the opportunity. They've gone through a crisis and need some help to get over the
1: home. Yeah, there's so much of what you said, and I just I, I, just want to plug in. When you talked mm-hmm. about cash, I'm, rem- I'm reminded of the call I had with David many uh, a couple of years ago where he talked about the null hypothesis um, that if you can't actually improve people's lives through your service more than you could by just giving them cash, then you know, you kind of got, you got, you got an issue and most, a lot of nonprofits that, who were talking in the context of nonprofits, that that is an issue in the nonprofit sector where so much money goes to supporting the salaries of people rather than directly going to, to you know the people in need. Um, but yeah, and yeah, but this, this whole notion of service, I guess, you know, did, did your views, it's a natural thing. Like people are drawn to these sectors because they really do see themselves as like able to uplift people. And there's almost an inherent, I mean, and, and this is just a question. It's a question, I'm saying it's a statement, but it's a question. But there's almost like an inherent inequality, like part of the reason I'm drawn to like serving in a part of the world that I, I perceive as having less. Um, and and I feel I can do something with the support of the agencies that are backing me. And I guess the question I have for you is like, for you, and, and this isn't like, as a child, did you feel that inequality? Did you feel that you were there to help. How did that shift? How, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if you can just maybe separate, if you can remember like times where you felt, you know, a sense of serving, a sense of helping, a sense of fixing and like what, how that felt within you. Like, what was, what was the difference within your body almost?
2: I honestly, never felt this issue of separation um sometimes i tried to assimilate too much <laughs> right you know and 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 be a part so that i could be a part of right not 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 outside and coming in and and um but i have colleagues in the field um that are like these people can't do anything they can't do this right they can't well, if it wasn't for us you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, they're always fighting. They're always arguing. But I, I think that there, there's, there's something important about what I like to call, uh, this is a bit of a soapbox, but this idea of the professionalization of the humanitarian sector, that the humanitarian sector is a sector of professionals that aren't humanitarians, right? But if we professionalize humanitarians, where there is a curriculum, a pedagogy around teaching people the reasons for doing these things and how you are serving others, even an oath, you know, doctors have to take an oath. Yeah, you know, there's nothing, there's no handshake, there's there's not special handshake, there's nothing that goes along with being a humanitarian. It's like, we need people to help then go in and, and go and do this. And so I think that um, I think there's a large, there's a large gap um, with a lot of people that are out there um, that, that they they've missed that piece right they were there to provide a service they're there to 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 fix right mm. their job is fix in the title kind of thing you know what I mean yeah. and so getting a, getting around that but for me really and truly it is it well look my grandfather was a service person right and I think uh I looked up to him a lot um and I mean I first few you know first kind of months of my life was spent in his home, in the, in the parsonage, right? The, the, the house uh, of the, 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 church and, and living in that house and, and that my whole life grew through him and seeing the right way to treat people with humanity, to see the right way to be able to, um, engage with people and hold space with people in a really meaningful way. And I think taking that, um, has been probably the most influential thing in my life, um, uh, to sit and to listen and to be heard by him was a, a joy every day, and mm. and so I think uh, he he showed me that way of being. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. that's beautiful. Is there um is there a time when you ever felt? I, I know you you came to feel like there was the potential of doing harm and et cetera. Is there ever a time you felt that you know whatever you were involved in it doesn't have to be you, but the the group or the organization did? Did you ever have this nagging sense of, oh my gosh, maybe we screwed up this town or we screwed up this community?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I was uh, I was involved in the event, well, at the fall of Gaddafi, I was on the border of Tunisia and Libya. Uh, and as people were coming across, so tens of thousands of migrants were coming across and, and and my job was to organize the camp where they were and then get them to the aircraft where they would be going home. Um, we didn't ask any questions on who these people were or what they were. There were no due diligence, no, you know, know, your customer, as we call it, KYC. There was nothing. It was just, okay, you're, you, you don't look Libyan. You you're coming off the, you're coming across the border. Where do you want to go? Oh, Ghana. All right. Get on the, get on the plane to Ghana. Oh, you want to go to Sudan? Okay. Get on the plane and go to Sudan. And, and that kind of thing. And we realized very much later, a lot of these people were trained mercenaries that were, you know, uh, working, you know, in or around what was going on uh, in Libya at the time um, were criminals that had fled their countries. Um, one, one example was uh, I was reading names from the passports to put people on a bus and I got through about 300 names. I only had two people come up, but I was with everybody uh, because nobody knew the name on their passports because all the passports were fake. And that, you know, and, and, and so we, we, through that work that we were doing, potentially probably destabilized communities and other countries because of the people that we were bringing back into those countries unknowingly, um, and so that that's that's just one stark example that's been documented at least outwardly on on what what happened there. But I, I think the do no harm is much more um, nuanced than. Then, did we really screw up a community? I think the do no harm is the waste of money. I think the do no harm, the the doing harm is the waste of money. It's I think the doing harm is um, getting a lot less impact than you could, um, based on the fact of of inadequacies in teams or inadequacies in planning or inadequacies in understanding of a situation. Um, so. Uh, there's also the dependency issue we talk about this a lot in in the humanitarian sector right do we how do we create dependencies and and how do we not create dependencies in the work that we do which is very tough um, especially in in more protracted crises that last 10 15 20 years somalia is a great example um, but but when when i when i look at this i i i learned when i left field work the, the main reason I left is because I kind of noticed three main gaps in the work that I wanted to really address. The first one was the wholeness of the humanitarian. The second one was how do we engage with the market to make sure that we are actually lifting people up and allowing them to engage in the global market in and of themselves through digital means or through access to, to, to different products. And, and the third one was, was the professionalization of the humanitarian sector. And so when we moved here, I was with Garrison, so running the C- Contemplative Based Resilience Project. I was teaching here at the university. There's a master's program for humanitarians here at the University of Croningen where I live, where we live as a family. And then I started Humanity Link, which was then that piece. So those were the three goals. And we gave ourselves five years, my wife and I. We said, "Okay, we've got five years. We're going to do all the goals that we want to do and see where it takes us." Because we really felt passionate about our own things. I mean, my my wife does something very different, but 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 we do it together as well. And and so that's really what we decided.
1: Right. Um, and when you say here, let's just uh, you're in the Netherlands, right? I'm in
2: the Netherlands, in in Groningen, uh, as you say here, Groningen, which is in the uh, uh-huh. the north, very far north of the Netherlands. Yeah
1: yeah and so I, you, you talked about the three things that you saw that kind of led you to think about the potential harm that was that was being done. Can you just do you want to say just a little bit more about each of those? I think that might be helpful.
2: Yeah, of course. So the first one, the wholeness of the humanitarian uh, again, you you can't you can't be able to give a hundred percent if you're not a hundred percent yourself. And what happens with humanitarians is there's kind of a, a, a scale. So imagine that you go to your your first crisis, you're in there and you're operational, and you can operate for a year at about 80% of the time, right? You're you're really working hard, but getting into year two, you know, you're you're finding different coping mechanisms. You've been in the field a little bit too long. You don't go home as often. You're centered around your office for the most part, or the community that you're working in. Your 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 impact level starts to go down. And then you get tired, you get angry, and burnout starts to set in. And so you say, Ah, it's time for me to move. You know, I'm getting a little bit tired here in South Sudan. You know, there's some new jobs opening up in Congo. Let me go to Congo. So now you're at the bottom, and then you enter into Congo and you kind of shoot back up. But instead of that nine or 10 months where you were kind of operating really high, now it's about six months. Then you drop down. And then about 18 months, you're in Congo. Then you're like, Oh, well, I'm really tired of this. I'm burning out. You know, this is horrible. Then you're like, Okay, I'm off to Myanmar. Then you go to Myanmar, now you've only got about four months of peak performance, and then it goes down more. And so you've got this kind of thing where the the it gets faster and faster and faster, right, The the ups and downs. And your effectiveness is really low. And your cost is extremely high because not only do you have a salary, it costs a lot of money to hire internationals and bring them into these places. Yeah. So I did a calculation once, right, and 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 just, just the burnout factor of humanitarians in a situation could save tens of millions of dollars if we just made the humanitarians uh, able to engage with themselves and be able to engage as a community as a whole to, to be able to work on their wellness together. Tens of millions of dollars per year in every crisis, not just, you know, all crises, you know, it's just... It just was uh, exponential, and so that's really that was that first piece that
1: that, that I really yeah. Enjoyed. Let me just talk to So, what for you personally? What were your tools like? You, I know when you got to Garrison, you were you were encouraging somatic and mindfulness tools. Was this was this one of the things that you used throughout? How did you come upon that?
2: Well, it, to be honest, I didn't learn. I learned by I learned by fail failure. Right. So so I mean you know I I burnt myself out all the time, and I knew that that was a cycle that I had to stop. And so when we left Thailand, um, this was in uh 2014, we left Thailand with the UN. I, I, I stopped working with the UN and we went to World Vision. And one of the big reasons for going to World Vision was because I believed um, you know, that it was an organization based on based on an ideal, right? And that ideal, which is faith-based uh ideals, taking that ideal might be a better direction. And I wanted to learn how they were doing it and what they were doing with it. And 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 how they were able to balance um, faith with humanitarianism, because the reality is, is from a humanitarian perspective, we have these things called the humanitarian principles. And you know, one of those is, is about not pushing, not creating a distance, a moral distance uh, between you and, and the person around religion, right? So if it's if somebody's Muslim, somebody's Christian, whatever, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really matter what they are, you're going to assist them the same. And I thought. Uh, when I got in there, that that's, uh, that was going to be the basis of my work. Yeah. And so I tried to deal with it. So meditation, you know, again, mindfulness, uh, I, I had a great coach at the time that was walking through mindfulness teaching with me and, and how to do that and and meditation, etc. cetera. But I was still, I was pretty green. I was having to learn. I've been, you know, we all learn, right. We learn our practice and, and, um, and it took me a long time. And, and really when I got with the garrison. Uh, is when it, it became real to me through mm-hmm. the people that I was working with and the people that we were able to engage in. It became very real.
1: And, and what was that? What was the project you were doing at Garrison? So there was one, solely
2: one project, and that's called the, the CBR, Co- Contemplative Based Resilience Project, which is a, um, a post-traumatic um, curriculum designed by Sharon Salzberg. Um, that uh, is used to engage with. At the time, it was humanitarians, human rights workers, and journalists. So people that were seeing a lot of things, engaging in a, uh, a lot of different crisis situations and were coming out with post-traumatic stress. Um, and then when COVID hit, it became about caregivers. So it, it started to to adapt and change to be for those that are, are in the service of others. Um, and how once you take all of that in, once you are in relationship with them and you're able to see and be and empathize with that pain, how are you able to deal with that pain yourself? Um, and uh, yeah, so that's that's that's
1: exactly what I did with that. Mm-hmm. I, I know I stopped you after one of the three, but I wanna, I, I, you, when you talked about World mm-hmm. Vision, it made me wanna go back. You started off your travels with a, a teen mission organization. Um, world Vision has, you know, will rightly or wrongly been charged in various parts of the world with proselytization. I'm curious, you know, if we were talking about service and we we're talking about versus helping versus fixing. To me, there's such an interesting, complex um, cocktail that comes up when you have, you know, service, missionary, kind of saving the soul notions. And then you have race at, at the core where you have a lot of white Westerners supporting, you know, people of color. I guess yeah. I'm just curious, how do you unpack you know the racial di- di- dimension, the kind of missionary dimension from true service. Is that true service when one kind of has an agenda?
2: I would say no. Or a
1: savior complex.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's a savior complex. Absolutely, a hundred percent. And and I I I to you to coin to coin the term. I I preach a lot about this. To be honest, I mean, but it's 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 a it's a huge thing. Um, it's, uh, it's more complex even than the complexity that you've even named, right? I mean, there is complexity also within national NGOs um, because they see them, people that are in those national NGOs might see themselves as better than the people that they're trying to serve, which is from their same population, right? Even their same tribe in some ways, et cetera. Um, and so there is, there, is, there is definitely a dynamic that being a humanitarian creates immediately within the communities that you're in. Um, I think that I think that humanitarianism directly stems from mission missionary driven work, right? So I think those two go hand in hand, and and that's really the idea of, of of how it started, right? And then what we had was not just the agenda of of religion, right? We also have the agenda of politics that are is deeply supplanted within the humanitarian sector as well. So I'm a white American male. <laughs> you know, uh, doing a USAID project in South Sudan after the war, after the United States has put in seven hundred million dollars or whatever into military aid, right? And you start you start to find these really strange dynamics that you get stuck in the middle of, and and that's what brought us to point two, though, right? Point two was I could remove the human, right? If I could use technology, there's a lot of parts about all of that nuance that we're discussing that I can. I can remove from the paradigm so as long as i can open up a channel for people to be able to speak then all the other stuff in the back end can happen however it wants to happen it doesn't matter because it's acting on what the person themselves said they needed now that doesn't compensate for the the and everything else around aid but what it does do is it starts to remove some of the barriers some of these moral uh barriers that that, that are in between and so one of the big ones I do right now is I build a lot of chatbots, right? So I build chatbots for people to, to engage, to ask for service, to request for services. And then within those chatbots, allow those services to be delivered to them simultaneously over a computer, right? Or over their phone. And, and it was a lot because of exactly what you said, the inefficiencies of all of these different things, these nuances that are in between lends itself to people not accepting, things not happening the way that they should, back to the burnout issue, you know, back to uh, power dynamics, all these things. And if, if I could try and remove those, right? Working on the humanitarian, but how can I help the person as well? Not, not the person helping or assisting, but the person that's in need, how can I help them so that it's easier for them to be able to access uh, assistance? And so that was what really brought me to the second goal.
1: Right. Um, and maybe I'll have to just say a little bit about the third, and then I'd love to have you talk about what you're doing now with Humanity Link, because that touches very much yeah. on all of this.
2: Yeah, so the third one was professionalization. I, I think I switched the two, sorry. But but uh, professionalization in the humanitarian sector. And again, it, it goes back to the humanitarian sector is full of very you know well-educated professionals uh, and a lot of people with a lot of experience, but very few people that understand what it means to be a humanitarian, right? Many people look at this as I've got a job, and they'll hop from organization to organization, country to country, you know, and just try to get up the ladder as quickly as they can, just like any other industry. Um, and and like I said, there are there are people out there. There are many out there that are trying to change and shift this paradigm. Um, there's a lot of of great people that have, have been awoken to uh, this this problem and are, and are really trying to shift it. But still, it's a long way to go. I mean. If you really look at humanitarians in the field, and I mean I just threw out a percentage, you know, probably 10% have been trained in what it means to be a humanitarian. The other 90% that are out there don't get any training. And, and so that's a that's an enormous problem. Um uh and so having being able to teach here at the university and and be able to support them here in their programs is is great for me, you know, and, and I get to talk to them about how to find a job in the humanitarian sector. What does it mean when you get in there? What are you going to face? What do you need to be aware of? You know, all these types of things, getting that ball rolling for them to think about is is, is really, really important because most people don't know those things.
1: Hmm, great. Um, can, you, can you say a few words about a humanity link? And then I do, I, I yeah, I want to come back to something you just mentioned, but yeah. Yeah, I'll of
2: course. It. Yeah. So, so Humanity Link was established with a lot of like-minded friends. Um so all the people that had been in the humanitarian sector and left the humanitarian sector at some point. Uh and we all came together and they all had their own consulting firms and we all came together and said, well, we let's create an umbrella organization that if we want to work together on with impact, you know, instead of just doing these single consultancies everywhere, let's use Humanity Link as that that conduit and what that has turned into really is more of systems innovation thinking, um, a kind of a systems innovation house that considers what's going on in the different systems that operate within the humanitarian sector, and then how can we design innovations or tools or products um, that can integrate into the humanitarian sector to make sure that those systems operate in, in, in a very efficient way. And what that's really come down to is one of the main, main products that, that we've been uh, working on now for the last three years is is around communications. How do we how do we allow people to have the voice where they are and, and noticing that as a gap. Um, but as I said, yes, uh, Sandra Tideman, who now heads up um, Garrison International, is is also part of Humanity Link, right? So so we, we all came together and said, look, we know that there's some problems here in the sector. So let's all come together with a really diverse group of of knowledge and then start to
1: work on changing that system. Are you finding that the uh, using technology to kind of get people's input um, that that goes to the kind of the bottom of the pyramid? Are they able to access technology?
2: One hundred percent. Yeah, I think that there's there's a lot of um, the, the 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 data doesn't lie in terms of the reports. You know, there was just a report put out by GSMA, it was the the global mobile network operator mm-hmm. uh, group um about access to phones in sudan for example of refugees and and something like 90 percent of all refugees have access to a phone whereas the beginning the hypothesis was they were going to get 30 to 40 percent and so the reality not not everybody's on a smartphone but but everybody has access to a phone that they can use on a daily basis um, and they're able and to use it in
1: this way to respond to kind of whatever request for information and
2: Right, and so that's one of the, the tricks of the trade is not developing apps because one of the things about apps is that really takes a lot of time and effort to, to engage with people on and teach them how to use the app. But if you engage with them on the way that they're already on the phone, so providing them a voice service where they can call into or SMS or what's the more technical term of USSD, which is the idea of creating a menu, uh, sharing back and forth over SMS uh, using WhatsApp or Viber or Telegram. <clears throat> and making sure that those systems are safe for them to use, but also making sure that services can be delivered through that, that system is what we've been putting together over the last three years. And it's it's really effective. I mean, one one small example, Ukraine, um, in Ukraine, um, the system that we've been working on with the Norwegian Refugee Council uh, exchanged over 120 million messages uh, just last month so there's 120 million interactions with over 650,000 households so 650,000 homes people in a home registered for assistance uh over the platform hmm. whereas nrc might have reached 15,000 um in 3 months you know by going door to door and knocking on the door and they were able to reach 650,000 in 20 days it's
1: amazing and uh, yeah that's amazing so I, I we're wrapping up on our time i know david's going to come in in a few minutes but i did want to ask you um Two 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 more lines of inquiry. One, do you think, do you think that humanitarians, you mentioned like, you know, six months, they start off whatever, right? One year cycle and it diminishes to eight months, six months, four months, whatever. This is maybe a an edgy question. But do you think people certain to me to move every four, six, eight months, year, whatever, it, that that's a that's a certain type of person. Do you think the type of person who is drawn to this kind of work maybe you know, is trying to avoid some some of their own issues?
2: Great question. I think my my uh, counselor also asked me the same one <laughs> a couple years ago when we started. Um, and uh I I had to dig in and ask myself that same question. Uh, even so, I'm I know that there is part of that in me, right? Growing up in a small town, wanting to get out. You know, what do they say about Ohio? You know, Ohio is so bad, it's got the most astronauts. They wanted to go to the moon, they wanted to leave so badly, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but, but you know, that's I mean, there is this 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 thing, right? Um, and I grew up in Appalachia, so I was I was growing up in 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 Southern Ohio. Um, and yeah, I mean, uh, mo- almost all my friends uh, never left right? They still live in the same county, uh, you know, um, and and never left. And so I think that there's a part of me that knew that, could see that, that this was, it was all or nothing, right? I was either going to be here forever um, and do my trips to to Cancun every spring break, or I was actually going to get out and, and do something different. And I would tend to believe that that most people in the humanitarian sector, I wouldn't say are running away, but have a penchant for something different than where they're from. I think, you know, they,
1: yeah, I guess I was talking about not so much running away from where you, where you're from, but running away from whatever unresolved trauma or stuff you have within you.
2: Um, now that one, that, that, that is edgy. And I would probably say, um, no, I, I, I there are, most people are walking into this with an open heart and a good heart, right? That doesn't mean that, that, sector doesn't break you, you know, over time. But, but I think that no, I mean, I lovely, wonderful people um, work in the humanitarian sector. Yeah, there's the rough cowboy or cowgirl or whatever you know that's out there. You know, that's kind of difficult to deal with. But, but in general, uh, I would say most people went into this with a really open heart on on mm-hmm. wanting to to make a difference.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Last question. You have this extraordinary partner who's also been an Awakening Call guest, Rokanie. I do. And yeah. <laughs> And I noticed it was interesting. I think in I think in one of your uh, answers you said that you met her on a bus ride, uh, or after, yeah, and or a bus stop. And I was thinking buses seem to have played an important role in your life. It was like I think a bus ride to your grandparents that led to this sense of want of travel. There, you talk about your yeah. bus ride in Mozambique. Anyway, it seems like there's a there's a lot of. Buses that's a awesome. World. I, I mean, never
2: here's... even noticed that. I never noticed the thread, but but good call. That's a great one. I, you're yeah, important.
1: Right. Important. Don't yeah. Don't don't take the fancier transport. Buses are where it's happening. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I guess no, that's the question great. for you is: You're raising this extraordinary, um, you know, global family now, multicultural. Um, tell us a little bit about you know how what you've learned through partnership, through through interracial partnership, and through you know, raising these extraordinary kids in so many areas. And what was that experience like for them moving around?
2: Well, if we have got another hour, I mean, but, they, 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 they but, but truly. Um, yeah. Again. Went in with an open heart and um, that doesn't mean that I went in with all the knowledge and the understanding that I needed to through that. It's been a learning journey um, and, and. Uh, we were married. Uh, so the story is we were married on July 3rd. I started with the UN on July 7th and I started traveling by September. And then that traveling didn't stop for, you know, uh, almost you know, 16 years. And and going through that uh, with our four kids, um, you know, and, and being able to do that has been just transformational for all of us, teaching us so much about self-awareness and empathy and learning and togetherness and um and yeah and and i don't know if it's fortunate or unfortunately you know i have to ask myself my daughter you know she's in boarding school in japan and now my son leaves for boarding school in japan in august and and, and my partner is going to be traveling to do a fellowship uh outside of the country starting in august or in september so you know, I mean, in truth, we are all nomads in this family that found the, the, the family to be in. Um, I think I think we, we've all felt that and, and done that. We've learned so much together. We have so many great memories. You know, sitting at the dinner table, we're like, oh, you remember that time in Thailand? Oh, do you remember that time in the Philippines? Oh, do you remember that time in Kenya? You know, and, and we all have different stories because it was different times of each of our lives. Right. And so some of the kids were too young. that can't remember the Philippines, but get to learn from the older kids. And, you know, the other ones, because they only had Kenya, for example, in their mind, that that uh, they get to tell this story with much more uh, vitality because the older ones are still remembering all the other places that we've been. So it's, it's a really great sharing environment at, at home. Um, yeah, yeah dude, there's
1: pictures. a lot. Going I'm going to I'm going to yeah. turn it over to David um, to, and to take it away. David, go ahead. Oh, well, you'll thank you, guys. So it's
0: been so delightful listening to this conversation, and I confess I've been champing at the bit a little bit to, to jump in. I want to remind all our listeners that please post your questions uh, in the chat um, uh, or send them to, to ask at servicebase.org so that we can get your voices into this as well, and we'll relay your questions in to Chris but while we're while we're we're letting you think about your questions and get them to us, I have a couple things I want to jump into, Chris. One was you said something that really struck me um and I hope I heard it right, so I'll read it back, which is that. That there's a growing number of, of people in your in your estimation in the humanitarian field who really want to adopt more of a service mindset as opposed to a fixing mindset, and I think one of the things we share very strongly is that we I think we have identified mindset as the core problem, if you will, quote unquote, yeah, that we need to work on, and obviously, um, Humanity Link is very focused on on changing the system or the mindset. Um, so you said more people, and in your life, you're seeing more and more people have this understanding of the need to shift the mindset, uh, but that the systems get in the way. And so I wanted to pause on that a little bit and say, obviously, you know, we're, we're that means change the systems. There's this beautiful quote from Paulo Freire, the the uh, the kind of liberation theologian from from South America, who said. Um, if systems don't allow for dialogue or structures don't allow for dialogue, the structures must be changed, yeah. <laughs> which kind of captures this essence. So how do you see the effort to change those systems? And when I think about the humanitarian space, there have been a number of big top level programs in recent years, I think going by names like the Grand Bargain of a few years of ago course. and then something called yeah. Charter for Change. And now there's an interesting new effort, uh, Pledge for Change, which is yeah. one of the most interesting, I think, because it's the first one that's kind of come from the global South, as opposed to from the powers that be in the humanitarian system. And I just wanted to pause and say, on the Pledge for Change, they're getting big INGOs to make three pledges. And I'd be interested in your reflections on this. One was more equal partnership between the big NGOs and local national NGOs. And I'd be interested in your take on that. Second, that we really need to change the way we raise money for humanitarian aid, the way we talk about people who need humanitarian aid. In other words, they call for authentic storytelling, yeah, which seems so. pretty aligned with where you're at. And then the third one was, to be more proactive about and be about learning the lessons out loud, to be transparent and to be influencers in the wider challenge of creating change in the system. Yeah. So what do you think?
2: You're just going to drop that down like that, David? That's awesome. <laughs> That's, I love it. No, and, and and I just want to do to tell you how much I did appreciate your call and all of the things that you do. I, I'm really honored to be to be speaking with you and um so the 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 more more authentic partnership or equal partnership right localization is what we call that this idea of 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 trying to do that i i think um there's a lot of talk around that right you mentioned the grand bargain which goes directly into that same thing right and and i think that um i don't think that the systems are ready i think there's a lot of lip service to be fair and honest um i think that uh i don't think any i don't think any bilateral donor. So what we would say is the, the government donors, uh, they talk a lot about it, but that real authentic way of doing it, they don't have the systems to do it. So mm-hmm. what are you going to do? Just dump a whole bunch of money on on, on some NGOs without you know, making sure that they have the capacity to deal with your audit. You know, USAID used to say for every $1 we give you, we have two to audit you with, you know, and so are they going to be ready to, to be able to deal with those things um, and that complexity when we're talking about hundreds of millions, you know, billions of dollars. Um, that the way that money is raised uh, that, that, that piece on, on, on true uh, storytelling, et cetera. I, I, I think that that's, that one's been there for a while, right? People have noticed it, but not many organizations take it to heart right so you still see dying children on the advertisement you know and these types of things and so people come already being like there's you know this this it's a horrible situation but they come with a different mindset as they're engaging versus actually engaging as equals you know going and sitting at the table with people and having a conversation with them about what gaps are they facing right now that you can mm-hmm. actually come and address you're Predominantly now, you're just coming in because you already know the gaps, right? Mm-hmm. You already know the, the issues that are there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the 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 last one was uh, was the the um,
0: I can't read my writing. The learning out loud and influencing. Learning out loud, the right? System. The transparency.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean the transparency goes with fear right the reason why ngos aren't transparent is because they're fearful that they won't get the money the next time mm. because the only way that 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 ngos operate is on their overheads that they get from the funds that they receive in the crisis that they go to so all these three things that we're talking about is how they make that's how they generate funds right they mm. they generate funds by saying they're accountable with the money so donors want to give mm. them money they generate mm. funds because they say we've identified the gaps and we're ready to address them and mm. and then they they advertise in the way that they do and the third one is is they're less than transparent on what outcomes there were because of the fact that they want to be able to access that money again. So in mm. truth, that's the problem in the system. All of these three things are the problems inherent with the system that are going to be the most difficult to change for those, especially international NGOs uh, that are operating in these situations. But to your point, your earlier point, just to comment, why, why is this changing? What's happening? I think there mm. are kind of three things that are happening. The first one is, is the engagement of the corporate sector in in humanitarian action, meaning that they're engaging in this way. And I think there's a big place for them uh, in many ways to do this, to bring people into a market very quickly, uh, to get them back on their feet. I think there's something really special there. I think the second one is all these new NGOs that are coming out. So we we talk about the Give GiveDirectly's of the world, the Kivas, et cetera. You know, all the models are still being worked out. They're testing, they're still in kind of a pilot phase from an NGO kind of perspective of 50 years versus five years. But, but I think there's something special. Uh, mm. out of some of these really new kind of millennial or pre-millennial Gen Z, whatever, you know, uh, NGOs that are coming out. I think there's something special around that. Uh, and, and the third one is, is that I think there is a growing movement in the sector, right? Um, because the old people, the traditionalists are starting to retire. And so now you're seeing a shift come up into management um, that, uh, uh, that hopefully and that I can see uh, has that change mindset uh, within them and so that's that's what i think
0: that's the beautiful thank you i um i at first i was starting to hear you know you're very clear and exper the voice of experience about why this is so hard to change given the kind of status quo and the way the system is currently operating but then you, uh, you kind of wrote, lifted me with the three things you're seeing that are, are more hopeful, and that's uh, that's beautiful. Are there other, um, are there other kind of, you know, one of the things that um, it's always interested me when you going just maybe a little deeper on these new NGOs. Um, you mentioned Give Directly, which of course is part of that cash transfer piece that you mentioned earlier. I mean this is all about directly empowering people giving them the ability to resolve their own situation and of course if if corporations are engaging in ways that give people a meaningful way to get a job or earn a livelihood and all of a sudden plug into the market so they become more self-sufficient that's another very empowering way do, do you do you see this as as uh, could you take us into a little bit more of what are the examples of this you know that are starting to show how this actually change, could change the system.
2: Well, absolutely, well, I think it's going to just, it, it'll destroy the system. I, mm. I, I think it goes back to your, your comment. I think that, um, you know, the archaic system of the way that humanitarian action is addressed um, will slowly fade into something new uh, mm. and different. And I think that we will see, we won't see the collapse of the large NGOs and that type of thing but I think what we will start to see is a completely different way of working because the voice will be so strong from the bottom up that the top down won't be able to address it, right? They mm-hmm. won't be able to deal with it unless they shift. And and a couple new things, I think that will, will make this change even more meaningful. So we talk about cash and we talk about give directly, but what we need to talk about is identity, right? One of the biggest gaps in all of this the reason why we can't give cash to everybody, the reason why this system doesn't work is because of the banking system, right? So another system that we need to look in addressing, because the bank needs to know who's getting, who's setting up the bank account, right? Every time you mm-hmm. go into a bank, you have to show your ID. You're not doing that to prove who you, who you are necessarily. What they're doing is confirming that you're not on a certain amount of sanction lists or whatever else, you know, that you've not been arrested, you've got access to this bank account. So how do we create that for people that don't have that? for people that don't have mm-hmm. an identity. And so digital identity, the growth of the digital identity within the humanitarian sector, I think, will revolutionize um, the way that people are able to access assistance. Another one is um, um, there's a lot of thinking going on on how do we take the traditional and bring it up, right? So th- these, these people that we're engaging with, the people that are in need, the vulnerable communities, have been there before us right? So they were surviving before us. It's not like we're coming in so that they can survive, right? And so why are we not looking back at what they had been doing in the past that kept them up and running and be able to identify what things happened in between? Was it a, a severe or acute event that created this crisis or was it a long-term issue that had been coming in? You know, is it a drought over the last 15 years or was it an earthquake, right? Those are two very different things and the way that you address it is very differently. And so bringing up, um, I wouldn't say call them conventional, I would call them traditional uh, practices within communities, modernizing them, bringing that back in because that that links directly then with the culture to make sure that that system then remains sustainable. One of them is this thing called community currencies. I don't know if you're familiar with that.
1: Mm-hmm. But community
2: currencies uh, is barter and trading your goods and services over the mobile phone uh, using SMS. So what you do is you would, you'd have a village and then everybody in the village has a service. So Josephine sells tomatoes and Joe is the teacher at school. So Josephine, you know, trades with Joe access to the school over the phone for him to access her tomatoes. And so you allow without filial currency, the community to interact with each other so that they're able to do it in a more traditional way
1: versus mm-hmm. letting
2: the current market system. Lay on top of them and actually create the inequity that, that that we face in many of these places. So there are lots of these going back to old systems. Uh, I think is 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 somehow the new uh, way of engaging with a lot of communities as we localize. That's them.
0: powerful. Thank you for bringing that in. I think it's sometimes called asset-based approaches. Instead of viewing people as deficits, you actually see the knowledge and the power. And and at this moment in in human history. I think there's a double benefit because um, when you take the really big picture of what's happening with our blowing through planetary boundaries and the level of, of um, kind of change that, that affluent consumerist Western societies are gonna have to go through in order to live sustainably, the double benefit is that traditional societies to use your word, have a have a better and deeper understanding of how to live that way. That we need to learn from. So there's a mutuality there of how we can kind of learn uh, from more traditional uh, societies that aren't over-consuming on on our on our planet. Absolutely, indigenous right, indigenous knowledge systems and being able to 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 to
2: grab onto that and, and understand it better is is going to be, I think, super important for the rest of history.
0: Mm-hmm. We have a question here uh from a caller that uh I thought I'd throw out to you, which is what would a Hippocratic oath for humanitarians look like? <laughs>
2: well it's a great question. So the like I said, we have the humanitarian principles, right? And the main there is a mantra that sits within the humanitarian work, and that's the title of this um this 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 call as well, which is do no harm, right? But again, it's the unpacking of those things and the understanding, right? I think that. When I speak to doctors, they have an an almost an innate understanding of that Hippocratic oath and what it means to them, right? And, and why they became a doctor, why they gave so much of themselves to be able to be in the service of others. And I think that um humanitarians, where we have the principles, we have the mantra, I, I think um. Uh, it's 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 one of those things it's it's you sign on to it but it's not like you have to say it right um, mm-hmm. and there's no accountability towards it that's the difference right there's no legal accountability I tell the story um, that uh, I was in the camps in northern Sri Lanka at the fall of when Prabhakarand was killed during the, the Tamil war and we, I was tasked with putting in 100 toilets I have no idea how to build a toilet and what if somebody got cholera from the toilets that I just built and who would hold me accountable? There is no accountability for humanitarian actors. There is no mm. legal basis. No, nobody can take me to court. Right. I mean, it would. So, so this, this idea that there's no legal binding, um, no binding authority around humanitarian action. Now in, in, in war, there is right. We know the Geneva convention, we know about these types of things, the rights of humanitarians, but but there's no legal accountability that sits anywhere else. Um, and when you know they're all diplomatic immunity, etc. All the UN staff, you know, all have immunity when they're there. It's not the full diplomatic immunity, but they they do have mm. diplomatic status. So mm. so those types of things, I think there's got to be a legal framework, something to hold people accountable in this work.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I'm you're reminding me that uh, I remember after the Prince earthquake. Uh, and the peacekeepers went in and the and the the humanitarian program went in. I think it was uh the Fijian peacekeepers brought cholera. Yeah and
2: uh well if Fijian uh, or Nepalese, there's a there's a story. Oh back. Nepalese, that's right. Right. that's right, that's right.
0: That was right, right. Yeah. that's right. It was yeah, anyway, I, I was there. You, you know the yeah. story better than I do. And yeah. I'm sure I, I there was, was there from
2: day two. Yeah.
0: Okay, so you remember that story first person. <laughs> so like, I I guess you know it was just it's always been spoken about as a kind of a, a tough case because in some sense you don't want to discourage helping but then you do want some kind of accountability for hurting, don't you so how do you get that yeah. balance right That's very interesting challenging thing um but uh, just to reflect on kind of everything and and kind of putting it putting it out in a slightly different way I I want to come back to this how do we, how do we speed up? It's like I you know I can't resist this urgency, sense of urgency around making more progress on these things. Uh and so if we know that this more uh service-based mindset, one in which we live in mutuality of relationships directly connected, you know, in a relational way with people, and then together find solutions is going to be better. And we know this. And we know that our current systems and structures don't enable that. How how do we how do we speed up that learning curve? What what are the things we can do to to um, to to make that happen faster? And I, I i i'm seeing i'm reading into Humanity Link a your effort to do that, and I think your three pillars are very powerful. Um, but but how do we speak? how do we do you, I, I mean it's just a question I hold I don't have an answer to it but it's a question. Uh, I
2: no, I think yeah I I I know where a starting point could be, uh, and that starting point goes with with donor leadership. Um, the anything that happens in a humanitarian situation is solely directed by the people giving the money, right? And if there is no money, there is no humanitarian action. And so those people that are giving the money, right, the bilateral donors and sometimes the multilateral donors, shifting the reason for how and why they are giving the money, that needs to shift first. The, the politics, that mm-hmm. I called it politicalization, right, but the politics around humanitarian donations um, is absolutely enormous. And, and mm-hmm. money is only given to areas where that could be. There could be a political, um, you know, uh, outcome that, that could potentially come from, from giving money at scale, right? Um, and so you see what we call them, we call them uh, protracted crises, and then what you have is underfunded emergencies, where yeah. these are emergencies where they've fallen out of media favor or fallen out of political favor, and then the money goes down. And so you see the World Food Program constantly saying, we're going to have to stop giving food in Yemen, we're going to have to stop giving food in Somalia, we're going to have to stop... Giving food in Kenya because because the government stopped giving money, and so the reality is is that the when the governments give the money, they're giving money at a one off, right? It's a act of Congress or whatever that we're going to donate, mm. and there's there, it's not linked with what's the outcome, right? It is it's the link of the political action and the money. There's no link to political action, money, and outcome. Right. And, and so I think that's the gap and getting the donors to be able to shift that. That's going to be the biggest change that we all need mm-hmm. to advocate through for, you know, through through mm-hmm. whatever political channels that we can engage in.
0: I want to I want to circle back to the, the point you made about leadership, because I, I think that's really important. Um, leaders are in an extraordinary Position to actually, in a f- truly, lead the change. I mean, literally, it's it's almost a definitional or a truism. And and this brings me back to your first pillar and the kind of heal thyself piece and the spiritual, the wellness, self care piece. To this, it, you know, you've really stepped out to lead a change. How did your own spiritual journey and form that ability to step out in that way and, and, you know, stand for the change rather than being really good and recognized for perpetuating a, a broken status quo, but, it, but be beautifully be, rewarded for it.
2: Yeah. I, you know, it, um, it was when I reached a level of being a, a, a director um, that I realized everything that was happening with the teams that I was working with. By seeing those teams that I was working with and seeing what was happening across them, because most of the time I was in the middle of it. So it's hard to see, you know, the forest from the trees kind of thing. right? Mm-hmm. But when, when I got a little bit out of that and I was able to see it and that just that it was it was it was night and day mm-hmm. for me. It just became so important to make sure that the, the teams that I was working with were happy about the work that they were doing right first and foremost right doing anything in the service of others if you go in with any any baggage you know that you're carrying in that immediately reflects on what you're doing right about the time spent about the effort spent mm-hmm. about your ability to create impact and so trying to wipe that away and work and it was great in world vision because there was a fallback that everybody had and so there was this opportunity to utilize the faith based part of world vision to create that mindset and well being and, and that really worked out well. And so then when CBR came up and being able to see that as now not just reaching a faith based or a type of faith, but being able to cut across all faiths, that just was really transformational for me, right? That, oh, we can use mindfulness to do this. We can use these different practices that we can bring people into that's actually going to be able to lift them out of this pain and this trauma that they've been just holding inside and taking mm. from place to place with them. Um, you know, it's just—it was like it's like a virus. You know, this, mm. this, this 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 struggle that so many humanitarians face, um, that they just keep carrying and passing on, right? Because if you come into your next team and you're managing your next team and you're all angry, all you're going to do is create the rest of your team to be angry and frustrated and you know and, and things. So I think really making that shift was was so meaningful to me and, and made such a mm. huge difference.
0: Well, I mean. You made that shift as you moved up to that level. So you were kind of out of the fray and you could see and then you could act. But why do you think you made that shift and so many others who move up to that level don't? What, what is it about your journey that allowed you to, to, to have that that insight?
2: Well, I think it was just, I think it was by chance of, of my journey, right? What mm. my journey had been where it started and and realizing that there was an emptiness uh, mm. as I was going through, uh, I continued on this journey mm. that mm. you get into the grading scale of where you want to be in a staff member and things and you lose sight of where you came from. And so being able to turn back and, mm. and look behind me and say, whoa, that was a whole different time for me. And I was so much happier. And why mm. am I unhappy now? And then turning that around and and moving that forward is really what happened. But it was it was a reflection, right, of when was I happy, when wasn't I, and I'm not happy right now. You know, at that time when I was talking, I'm, I'm not happy right now. Mm. Why am I not happy? And and trying to understand that and then being able to see.
0: That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you for that reflection. Yeah. Um... Well, we're starting to get towards the end of our call, sadly, um, and we have a kind of a, a final question that we always ask, which is really along the lines of, how can we, as the service-based community,, um, uh, you know, in the broader service-based ecosystem, be supportive of your vision and your work in the world?
2: I, I, that's a wonderful question and I really appreciate it. And, and one of the the big things for me is I, I was I was talking to, to you both earlier. I had just gone through a pod on service service base with, with laddership. And it was really meaningful to me. and I think being able to find a way for the humanitarian sector to be able to know what service space is and be able to have an opportunity to engage with service base would be so special. I mean, I'll be honest and open, uh, you know, and I know it's an enormous community, but I learned about it from my wife. Uh, I learned about service space from my wife, you know, it was passed along. And I passed it on to many of my colleagues, et cetera, since then. I mean, I think that that organic growth is really awesome. But I think there's also, there could be intentional opportunities as well, you know, and I know that might not be the ethos of service space, et cetera. But, but that intentionality with uh, folks like, like the humanitarian sector um, and being able to I'll give one small example, David. So I was speaking with some colleagues um, a few weeks ago, in, I was in Rwanda. And when I started CBR, uh, when I started working for CBR, the, the Garrison Institute, I went to ICRC, the International Committee, Committee for the Red Cross. And um, they had maybe five or six people that wanted to join CBR, right? But now they re-advertised, uh, a different mindfulness training with uh, Plum Village, so they've created a, a, an engagement with Plum Village at ICRC, and they had over seven hundred people sign up in the first week.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: there's a shift happening. You know, there's there's a consciousness that's also changing within the humanitarian sector. As I said, the old the older folks, you know, are are, are slowly changing, mm-hmm. and there's this this young cadre that's been growing up with a lot of these terms and a lot of this knowledge. There is an emergence. There is this consciousness that's coming within the humanitarian sector. And um, I think that service space could offer a, a, a wonderful opportunity for them to, to, to grow within that.
0: Thank you. I mean, it's a challenge for us. We like our best kept secret status. Yeah, I know. I know, <laughs> I, know I know. Rita, do you have any other, uh, I see you're, you're, you're back with us. Do you have any, any last questions for Chris as we start to wind up
1: here? Oh, just incredible gratitude for the two of you, for both of you. You both have been giants in your field, and I feel like you're both going at similar um, issues and situations about how to bring greater voice. Um, David, you know your your technology that you pioneered so many years ago, it's constituent voice. How do you bring constituent voice into service? Um, so I just really, I'm just yeah, I'm just really drawn to the the two of you, the whole approach of all of this. And I'll just say, I, you know, I'm trusting like, like service Space does that water flows where it's meant to flow. And uh, mm-hmm. sometimes there's like different, sometimes when we try and design impact, we limit what true impact really is. Um, so just trusting in all of this, grateful to all of you. Thank you.
0: Well, you know, I, I have to, I wanted to say that when you offered me the opportunity to meet Chris in this way and to learn about his work, it felt very, I jokingly wrote and said, we're going to have an orgy of confirmation bias here. You know, <laughs> yeah. this is, this is, you know, when we, this is to, you know, to us, it feels so obvious mm-hmm. that the system has to shift in these ways. And it's just, it's just beautiful and wonderful to be together and share the stories of how this is happening. It is happening. I'm really glad, Chris, that you see this changing consciousness and that, more and more people are are hungry for the mindfulness work and the kind of inner to the outer peace and the connecting in relation and it, you know I I do believe with the rest of the service based community that if we we let the water flow in this way we will eventually inhabit a, a kind of collective new mindset in this regard it's happened before and it'll it'll happen now so thank you for this opportunity
1: I'll just throw, I want to throw one more thing in there. It's interesting as I listen, I, I think what jumps out for me from this conversation, it's actually been quite interesting. You know, Chris, there's, when people step away sometimes, you know, and step away, step back and kind of try and uh, think about similar problems in a different way. Um, there's often kind of a little bit of a distancing from what I did in the past and what I'm doing now. That, that's my experience. What I'm what I'm really drawn to and stuck that really strikes me about the way you think about this and are talking about this. Um, there's there's a real love for the mission that you're on so so called um, and there's not there's a stepping back but not a stepping away and it doesn't feel like there's that distance um, and that's beautiful like you're continuing you're right in there and the the question, and I'll just leave it as a question. The question that, does, that that doesn't have to have an answer. Probably is there is no answer. I'm struck by you know sometimes the stepping back can lead to a sense that I'm going to approach this with different tools. Like the master's tools cannot dismantle the master's house. You know the changing of the systems not going to come from the same things I've been doing. And I admire what feels like an attempt to jump back in there, but with different you know. Maybe slightly different consciousness, but similar tools. But maybe slightly, you know. So I don't know. It's it's an interesting experiment, and uh, I'll be curious as to whether the stepping back will ev- eventually lead to a stepping away, or whether this is like this will this will be the what feels like for you the right thing to do.
2: I really appreciate, it. and I'm, I'm I'm glad that I'm at least able to still purvey my love for the work that I do because I I really do love uh, doing what I do and and. It's been a, it's been a long journey that I, I don't want to end, <laughs> you know, it's, it's been great. Yeah. But thank you both. And, and, and David, you know, just a small anecdote. So constituent voice, uh, you know, my, the, the tool that that uh, the chatbot tool that we created is called voices. So it's the, the same, right. The, the consciousness is there, right. It's, 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 it's mm-hmm. transferring across all of this stuff because we, we do know that the biggest gap was listening to those that are the ones in need. You call mm-hmm. it constituent voices, we call it voices, you know, but it is that that idea of of engaging with communities in the way that they want to engage, and it's so so. Mm-hmm.
0: And you also invoke that beautiful embodied dimension of that in singing and the fact that you remember all the, you know, le- songs that you learned in whatever language you happen to be traveling in. So there's the perfect kind mm-hmm. of landing of that in our bodies.
2: I know my wife is famous for singing on these calls. I please don't ask me to do it. It's it's the last thing.
0: <laughs> Actually, we're gonna go. We're gonna go the other direction now. We we thank you, and we'll close out with uh, uh, as we began in with a, a minute of silence. Thank you for listening to a recording of Awaken Calls. To access archives, visit us at www.awaken.org.
2: And to get more involved, volunteer at www.servicespace.org.